Cohen is a political scientist and author, and presently Dean of the Paul Nietzsche School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. He was a councillor of the State Department under Condoleezza Rice from 2007 to 2009. Elliot, you've written or edited over a dozen books, and the latest is The Hollow Crown, Shakespeare and How Leaders Rise, Rule and Fall. Uh, this is, of course, coming out with the, uh, I think it's pronounced catacentenary of the first folio of, uh, of William Shakespeare, so it couldn't be better timed. Um, what gave you the idea of writing this book? Well, it's, uh, of course, it's a bit out of my lane, as we would say. By the way, it's great to be with you, Andrew. Um, Thank you. Uh, you know, I'm, as you know, I'm mainly a military historian. Somebody writes about foreign policy and things such as that. But I've lived in Washington for quite a while, and I've served in uh, the United States government, and I've uh, been a dean. And uh, the the opening line of the book is, it's all very well to see Richard II, Goneril, and Iago on the stage, I've actually had to work with some of those people. And, and that's, that's that's really the, the, the conceit of the book. The trigger, I will tell you, was seeing a performance of Henry VIII. Uh, we have actually two Shakespeare theaters in Washington, which is a, a delight. Henry VIII, uh, as you know, some people were not initially sure that Shakespeare himself had written it. It was probably a collaboration. But there is a great scene um, at the at the very at when Cardinal Wolsey, uh, uh, Henry VIII's uh, chancellor, is deposed, and he gives a, a wonderful speech, which begins, farewell, a long farewell to all my greatness. And then at, at one point, he uh, he describes how, you know, he's, he's feeling full of confidence. Um, and when he thinks good, easy man, full surely his greatness is a ripening, nips his root, and then he falls as I do. I have ventured like little wanton boys that swim on bladders this many summers in a sea of glory, but far beyond my depth. My high-blown pride at length broke under me and now has left me weary and old with service to the mercy of a rude stream that must forever hide me. And as I listened to that, I said, I know that guy. I mean, that is a, a familiar figure in Washington. Yeah. And uh, one thing led to another. I ended up teaching a course on Shakespeare at uh, Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies to students who are, you know, there, as you, as you would say, postgraduate. Uh, many of them headed for careers in government, many with already having very interesting uh, life experiences behind them. It turned into a book and then uh, uh, it turned into a course rather. And then uh, that, uh, that turned into a book. When you mention Henry VIII, uh, he's often um, equated nowadays, at least, to Stalin, because of the uh, of the arbitrary nature of his uh, of his paranoia and so on, and uh, and obviously that's the that's number a... of people he kills. Can you see? Can you see that? Is there a, um, a analogy there? Would you? Think? Yeah, you know, I I mean, I think that one of the things that's um, that's so interesting about Henry VIII is. Unlike a lot of Shakespeare's other kings, uh, his character is not particularly clear. Now, this this may have been because it's a little bit too close uh, for, for comfort, uh, given that he was living in the reign of Elizabeth and then of James I. Of but, but I think he deliberately makes uh, him an ambiguous figure who is hard to figure out. You know, there some, some of Shakespeare's uh, characters, most of Shakespeare's characters, I think, are shown with just 
you know, remarkable clarity. And then others, he likes to leave a mystery. So Iago is like that in Othello. You know, we're never quite sure. Why, did, why does he decide to do in Othello? There, there's some hints, but they don't add up to a picture. And at the end, you know, he's being carried off to be uh, tortured. And you somehow know he, he's not going to tell anybody why he did that. Your phrase, the the phrase you quoted about wanton boys, is uh, the ones floating down the river on bladders. Is uh, yeah. uh, reminiscent of that um, line about, and I think it's Hamlet, isn't it? Uh, As flies to wanton boys, are we to the gods? They kill us for their sport. Uh, that's uh, Lear. Yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. Uh, do you uh, see? Do you see any King Lears in um, in modern day American politics, specifically? Should we say in presidential politics? <laughs> Yeah. You know, the, the problem is, of course, I mean, in a way, it's a book about uh, the analogies and metaphors that that Shakespeare gives us to understand political people. Um, you know, the, the thing about Lear that I find interesting is that he wants to have it all. He wants to leave power and yet still have all the trappings of power uh, and, and the deference and respect. I talk a little bit in the book about... Um, other people I've seen who've left power and the, the way the book works for the benefit of the listeners is I don't go play by play. I go through what's essentially three phases, how leaders rise, how they rule, and then how they fall. And I have seen people who've left power and who, like Lear, don't know who they are after they've left power and suddenly find it intolerable that the kind of deference and uh uh treatment that they used to get they no longer get and you know lear finally recovers his humanity of course but at a terribly high price and i've seen some people I've, i have seen a few who have and i'm afraid i think i've seen more who don't yes we we find that with uh, former prime ministers they absolutely hate their post prime ministerial life there are very few of them that have managed to um uh, segue into their post prime ministerial life successfully um you mentioned iago earlier and uh, what if Iago doesn't actually have a driving um, reason that some people have put forward sexual ones, haven't they? And others, uh, a, um, a time that Othello um, mistreated him in the right. past and so on. But are there people in politics? Have you come across people in politics in Washington um, who are just plain unpleasant <laughs> who, <laughs> who just are motivated to do uh, to do betrayals because they enjoy them? Sydney. I think that's that's characteristic English understatement at work. Uh, there, there's a wonderful one-hour show by Patrick Page, who's a terrific Shakespearean actor in the United States, about Shakespeare's villains. And he has a very interesting riff on Iago at the very end, where he says that, among other things, Shakespeare does periodically give you figures who are sociopaths. Uh, and, you know, I've I've dealt with a few sociopaths and you, not just seeing them in charge, but, you know, you see them sometimes hovering around. And that that does describe Iago in a way. He's very different from the Richard III figure, who is a kind of a tormented, twisted, horrible guy, although he completely takes us in as as frankly, some sociopaths do. Um, but, but we Shakespeare gives us more of a window into his soul than into Iago's. And and again, that that you know squares with my experience. You know, you've there are people that you encounter in government and in academia, let me say, uh, who 
you know, you can understand their motivations. And even if you think that they're kind of loathsome as human beings, you can, you can figure them out. And then there are others who just seem to act on a kind of whimsical malice. And, uh, and that, that, that's real life too. Your mention of Richard III um, makes uh, Vladimir Putin spring to mind. Do you think there might be yes. some connection there? Oh, ab- ab- absolutely. So one of the things I mentioned in the book, and I, I try to tie, you know, to some extent personal experience, to some extent some historical reflections in, and I uh, I mentioned the following episode. I was attending the Munich Security Conference just before the um, full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine in February of 2022. And what struck me is most of the Europeans, I would say fewer of the Americans, but most of the Europeans present, all people of vast experience and knowledge, said, well, you know, Putin will not, uh, you know, he won't try to take the whole country, may try to take a small piece. This may be a very cunning bluff and so forth. And I have to say, I doubted that. And the reason had nothing to do with my knowledge of Vladimir Putin or Russia. It had everything to do with rereading the Richard III for about the ninth time. And what struck me in the rereading was, um, you know, throughout the first three acts of Richard III, he's cunning, he's indirect, he's clever, um, he's doing terrible things. You know, he's having his brother killed, among other things. Uh, <laughs> but, but in in Act Four, he commits the big crime, uh, murdering his nephews in the tower. And there, what's striking to me about that is. He no longer thinks he has to conceal anything. And when his uh, loyal subordinate Buckingham kind of gives him a funny look, he says, I want the bastards dead and wish it done suddenly. Do you understand? Answer me quickly. And there's a, and furthermore, he gets very interested in the details of the killing of two children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he begins talking in ways which really kind of reference rape. Well, if you look at Putin, I think, you know, I had, just feeling something similar had happened. This guy had been clever. He'd been indirect. Uh, he'd been cunning. If you look at you know, the way they took Crimea, if you look at uh, Georgia, um, if you look at the initial um, uh, seizure of Donbass in 2014 uh, and 15, a- and then it's clear that he no longer felt he needed to do that. And, and like Richard III, he begins to invoke the metaphor of rape. Remember, there's one chilling speech or may it may have been an off-the-cuff remark where he's sort of addressing the uh, Ukraine, specifically Zelensky, and saying, like it or not, my beauty, you'll have to accept it. Yeah. Uh, so echoes of Richard III there. And Prigozhin. I, actually, you must be the first person ever to imply that Prigozhin has anything in common with the princes in the tower. <laughs> uh, well, he, he Prigozhin is like some of the murderers um, who have had, uh, and you see this in both Macbeth and in Richard III, who I've, I forget which play now, you know, they say, Macbeth you know, had, had a... they have the blooded hands, don't they? And Lady Macbeth has them done in. Well, oh, those are the ones he has done in, but, but um, I think maybe then it's, it's Richard III where they say, you know, we're, we're, we're people who've been so bruised by life that we just don't care. Yeah. And in a way, that that's probably the Prigozhin story too. I mean, a guy who spent nine years in Russian prisons, uh, who I mean, that that was one of the things that struck me during his ill-fated uprising, that this is a guy who has seen horrors and committed horrors, and the result is he's kind of a warped 
personality. He's been dehumanized, yes. essentially, by uh, by by life. Um, now, you you speak in this wonderful book, by the way. I I, I haven't praised it enough. It's a fantastic book. And congratulations <laughs> on it. About performative uh, politics, about how you say uh, theatre suffuses all of politics, which of course is true. Um, tell us a little bit more about that. Oh, well, um, you know, when I when I talk to people about what you know, why should you be studying Shakespeare if you want to understand politics as it is? I say one reason is because of his ability to dissect character in a way that nobody else can. One has to do with the his metaphor of um, it's not a metaphor his his study of courts, and I think all human organizations have courts at the top of them. But then it's also his very powerful metaphor, which he he continually explores of politics as a kind of theater. And it is. And, you know, the thing is, these days we we tend to be mistrustful, understandably so, of performative politics and the kind of shenanigans that unfortunately we see in the House of Representatives in my country. Uh, but there's also a very powerful theater of politics. You know, if you look at Zelensky, sort of immediately changing from a business suit into this kind of quasi-military garb, um, if you look at just the the Shakespearean or Churchillian cadences of the speeches he gives. If you look at that first night where when um, Ukraine is under attack and there he is in this sort of green military-ish uh, garb and he's got his team around him and he says, I am here. The chief of staff is here, chief of defense. And it's the streets of Kiev. It was a uh, under attack. It was a very powerful piece of theater. Um, and of course, the contrast, and I bet Zelensky was thinking about this because he he is an actor. Uh, the contrast, of course, is with Putin, you know, having all of his terrified subordinates, you know, 30 or 40 feet away from him in this, you know, gigantic kind of over the top um, guilt smeared uh, palace. It's very, very powerful. And I think it was very effective. And I think it was it was critical. I mean, look, Church, Churchill, who I, I talk a little bit about some of the politicians who love Shakespeare, Churchill being one of them, Churchill unquestionably ma mastered the theater of politics. And actually, um, there, there, there is a, a line, isn't there, of Zelensky's in that we will defend our independence speech yes. where he goes, that is how it will go. And it's so yes. uh, reminiscent of uh, of Churchill in, in June 1940 saying, at, at any rate, that is what we are going to try yes. to do. Yes, yes. And, the, you know, it's it's a brilliant little rhetorical thing because you go from the, um, you know, from the soaring eloquence to the sort of statement of determination by the you know continually repeating the same phrases and then the conversational at the end that is what we are going to try to do yeah. it's conversational and i'm a human being just like you yeah and um uh you you mentioned costuming and uh and the uh jfk and and so on american uh, politicians obviously Winston Churchill was a huge uh, figure when it came to to the props and uh, his his hat and his v-side and his cigar and uh, and bow tie and, and all of those kind of things that's um that's a theatrical aspect of politics that Shakespeare would immediately have understood isn't it oh ab ab absolutely and, and I think you know, but they don't have to read Shakespeare it helps probably but I think most um, successful politicians understand something of the 
of the theater. Now, the ones who attempt it and get it wrong get into deep trouble. I remember when Michael Dukakis, who was a very decent governor of Massachusetts, uh, was running against George H. W. Bush. And of course, Bush was a World War II veteran, and you know they they kept on running. He goes for a ride in a tank, and they have a picture of him, and you know it's just miscasting. I mean, he he doesn't look like the kind of guy who's comfortable sitting in the turret of an M1 tank, you know, hurtling around at uh, fifty or sixty <laughs> miles an hour, and just and 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 that's you know uh, yeah. it's one of the great perils the politicians face. Absolutely. Well, we had the famous photograph of Margaret Thatcher in a tank, and she looked absolutely at home. <laughs> I bet <laughs> she'd have I done bet. seventy miles an hour if she'd been able to. <laughs> I, I, I bet some politicians can pull it off, and some, some can't. Brutus and Mark Antony, that absolutely key moment after immediately after the assassination of Julius Caesar, you uh, you focus in on that as a as a brilliant way of explaining how uh, oratory can fail and also how it can succeed. Tell us a bit about that. So I what I do is I draw the the contrast between uh, Brutus's speech, uh, where he he really manages to get everything wrong. I mean, Brutus is a pretty decent guy, although actually he has some traits in common with Julius Caesar, which I think if you read the play carefully, you see they're not quite as different as you might think. I mean, they both insist on being number one. That's why Brutus doesn't want Cicero in on the plot. Um, but in any case, so they they kill Caesar. Uh, Brutus, of course, wants to have it both ways. He doesn't... Uh, uh, when Cassius, who's a lot smarter about politics, says, you know, we've got to kill Mark Antony, too, uh, you know, Brutus refuses. Then he come, he leads everybody and says, I have an idea. So we'll, we'll go in and uh, we'll dip our hands uh, up to the elbows in blood. Uh, and, you know, he then gives a speech, which is all in the first person. It's all about him. And then he decides to leave the stage to Antony. Well, it's the biggest, and by the way, he speaks in uh, prose. He doesn't speak in iambic pentameter. So he just, he blows it thoroughly. Whereas Mark Antony, of course, in that very famous speech that I think everybody reads and hopefully memorizes in school, if they still memorize great speeches, as I, I hope they do over there. I don't know. They don't, uh, they don't over here. <laughs> I can uh, assure you of that, unfortunately. Uh, the world no, no, is no. going to hell. No, no, um, no. You know, he, he really, what's so interesting about that is, I think, two things. One is, he, you know, he kind of brings the mob along. He uses the body as a prop. He rearranges the crowd. He tells, there's a point where he tells them to come in closer. He appeals to different emotions. But the other thing that is fascinating is Mark Antony, and this is, I believe, characteristic of some great demagogues. His some of his emotions are quite sincere. You have the feeling that he he is genuinely grief stricken about Caesar, and on the other hand, he's a completely calculating, uh, deceptive guy at exactly the same time. So you know, after the mob goes off to, uh, you know, murder and loot. You know, he's happy. You know, this is, uh, you know, let mischief do what it will. And, you know. And he's, and he's repeated uh, several times that Brutus is an honourable man. And each time he repeats it, you can feel the crowd thinking, no, he isn't. We're going right, to burn right. down his house. <laughs> right. and, and, he, you know, he's clearly 
and this is something that I think demagogues do have is the ability to read the average person and to respond uh, in an almost feral way to their weaknesses. Um, you know, a, somebody who we tend to think of as a hero, Henry V, is a genius at that. Yes, I was just about, I was about to come on. You call him um, you call him Shakespeare's most br brilliant political. Um, creation because of the way he's uh he's despite his seductions lies and self-pity uh he is not the villain of the uh of the but of the play but actually in a sense he is isn't he oh yeah i i mean my view is he's a real stinker i mean he's really a <laughs> he's an awful he's an awful guy you know you think about it he you know betrays his uh his best friend falstaff he has another friend executed he sets things up so that there'll be this war, which is an unjust war, but it'll be somebody else's fault. With with Henry, it's always somebody else's fault. Uh, there's that wonderful scene, you know, towards the end before Agincourt, it's a, you know, a touch of Harry in the night. That's what the chorus says, at least. Um, and he's trying to engage his soldiers and equals as equals. He then gives a soliloquy where he calls them peasants and fools who don't really understand, you know, what it's like to be king. And then you know, the next moment we see him giving the St. Crispin's Day speech. Yeah. You know, we're, we're a band of brothers. Where we follow him, don't we? I mean, the charisma is such that, well, especially exactly. by Laurence Olivier on a on a rearing horse uh, in uh, just before D-Day, we, we follow him, don't we? Well, well, that's, I think, part of the brilliance of Shakespeare is it's not just that somebody like Henry V can fool the people in the play, as it were. He can fool us. And it that's even though Shakespeare has given us all the evidence out there to know what he's really like. And again, I think this is something that's very true of political life, where it, it's not that there are people sometimes think that there are big secrets, which if you only knew them, you know, the scales would fall from your eyes. No, actually, the basic data is always out there. But so often in politics, we see what we want to see. So is this charisma? Is this um, Shakespeare essentially writing about charisma even before the, the sort of modern concept of charisma? Uh, well, I think in the case of Henry V, it is, but I would say it's more manipulation. It's self-conscious. I mean, there's a certain kind of charisma that leaders sometimes have. Actually, Thatcher, who you probably knew better than I did, but I, I met her a few times. There was a certain charisma where you just said, my goodness, I'm in the room with the presence of some kind. It's, by the way, how Kissinger describes being in the same room as uh, Charles de Gaulle. Uh, in the first volume of his of his of uh, his memoirs, he says, "You just had the sense that if De Gaulle moved over to the window, the whole room would kind of suddenly tilt, and we'd all fall out." <laughs> uh, you know that that is that is charisma, where it, it's not self consciously orchestrated. I mean, Henry V undoubtedly had some of that, or Shakespeare's Henry V, that is. But but I think what Shakespeare shows is how much is also artifice. Yes. Yes, and you get that also a lot in Hamlet, don't you? Yes. Um, yes. Uh, so um, tell us a bit about uh, about Hamlet, about about the politics of of Hamlet in particular, or at least the uh, uh, what what modern politicians have uh, how leaders rising, falling, and and ruling can learn from from that play. You know, I I deliberately did not write about Hamlet in the book, and the reason why is if I began tackling that monster of a play. <laughs> I, I would never be able to uh, to finish it. 
I think, you know, for me, the most interesting character in it, this is maybe an evasion of your question, is Polonius. Mm. The the uh, the counselor who is, a, on the one hand, a blowhard, um, but actually there's wisdom there. And, you know, he you run across that kind of character periodically who you are tempted to dismiss uh, because they're just, they talk too much. Um, you know, they they don't listen. Polonius is not a listener. Um, yeah. He has many limitations as a counselor, yeah. but actually periodically there's wisdom. And I think, you know, to, um, to understand politics, you sometimes have to be able to listen carefully to people who you think, 85% of the time, they're just, you know, jerks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And he comes to an unnaturally un, un, yes. sticky end, doesn't he? For no particular reason. I can't see right. the need for the death of Polonius in that. I think that's the point. There's something, it's random. It's not what Hamlet intended. Um, and that happens too. I mean, I think, uh, you know, it, it it's a mistake to view politics as people sometimes do as a kind of morality play where... Uh, you know, yeah. good gets rewarded and evil gets punished. I mean, yeah, sometimes right. things just work out really badly. You know, I, I mentioned that in another play, Cymbeline, which of course is produced a lot less often, um, Belarius, this counselor who's kind of kidnapped two princes and is educating them somewhere in the woods, uh, is trying to explain to the princes that that's you know that that's the way um that's the way that it it, it works and he you know he has actually if, if i could just give you a couple of lines he said you know the, the the kids want him to tell them what you know what is it like being in the court and he says how you speak did you but know the city's usuries and felt them knowingly the art of the court as hard to leave as keep whose top to climb is certain falling or so slippery that the fears as bad as falling, and he goes on and on. And how and how often um, doth ill deserve by doing well? Yes. You know, you 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 end up getting punished for having done the right thing, and and they of course. And the great thing about it uh, for me, and as an old teacher at this point, is the students go his princes, namely the students go, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we we get that, but uh, we want to be in the room where the decisions are made. You know. <laughs> Um, and as you said earlier in this um, in this podcast, you said all human organisations have courts at the top of them. Yes, and um, and and that of course is is right, and it's specific, particularly true at number ten and in the White House, yeah. isn't it? Uh, where um, now this is a um, a question, obviously, I'm posing to somebody who who hasn't stood for elective office and has been appointed in this in your case by Condi Rice. Uh, to the State Department as an advisor, a counsellor. So you're not, you're giving your advice and counsel, but you don't have to face the electorate of, uh, at any stage any more than uh, Condi Rice did. Uh, to what extent should the counsellors of elected politicians like presidents and prime ministers also um, be responsible? Or is it is it fine to uh, have the systems that we have in democracies whereby the people giving advice don't actually ever have to... Hmm. Um, I mean, they're they're coaches in a sense, much more than uh, than um, yeah. actors in their own right. That's a really interesting question. I think, on the one hand, um, at least from my own observation, and at least of democratic politics in our time, 
the kind of person who has what it takes to get elected uh, is going to have a very, very different set of aptitudes and sort of knowledge base and character than the people advising them. And the, the kinds of people who, you know, for example, have very sophisticated understanding of international politics or defense policy or you name it, um, they are just not going to be the kinds of people to run for office. Um, and I think it's right to have the people who, who do run for office and get buffeted around that way to be the ones who call uh, who call the shots. On the other hand, I think it's a very bad idea to have counselors who are too young, to have counselors who haven't had some sort of serious life experience. I once, perhaps unkindly, but I think accurately said, I would, I would feel better about the staff around President Biden or before him, President Obama, if they had at least been in a couple of bar fights <laughs> uh, so that they would know so that they would know some elemental things about the nature of conflict and including about the 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 nature of war so i think there there's that you know there's also uh, just to give you a, i mean this, i'm sure you'll be able to quote the whole passage from memory there's a great passage in churchill i think it's um it may be in the world crisis where he he goes off on a riff about um, how generals are treated in life and how politicians are treated. Yes. And it's and it's about how, and, and I have absolutely seen this, the more and more senior you are in the military, as you pin on in our system, one star after another, you get treated with a, a lot of deference, certainly by the people all around you in the military, but even by the, yeah. the civilian politicians for the most part, not always. And, and Churchill's point is, the higher up you go in politics, the more people you have who are telling you you're a complete idiot. Yeah. Uh, now, I can't quote the exact uh, thing, but you're quite right. It's, it, it is in World Crisis. And he he's essentially on, uh, saying that the more eminent a general becomes, the fewer people say no to him, the fewer people ridicule him, the fewer people uh, try to uh, sort of cross him, whereas the exact opposite is uh, is the case in politics. And and, and that makes perfect sense. De Gaulle, by the way, said something similar. In uh, uh, Charles de Gaulle in the late 20s, I think, wrote a, a fascinating little book, which uh, people should read, called The Edge of the Sword, which is about civil-military relations. And he has a, it was a, it's very, you know, sort of very French uh, kind of uh, ideal type of the politician and the general and why they will never really be comfortable with each other because they have to be such different people. Is it fair to say in business that the richer and more successful and more powerful somebody becomes, the fewer people um, say no to no, them? No, absolutely. I, uh, because, the, yeah. because they have courts as well, don't they? The great, the CEO of the of the massive company has a court just as, uh, just as the, the politician or the soldier. The same thing is true of universities and the same thing is true of any other nonprofit, you know, I've I've seen there there are plenty of examples of really big nonprofits where whoever's in charge has a court, and they are probably not hearing a lot of people saying, you know what, boss, I think that's that's just wrong. I, you know, you mentioned I was counselor of the State Department. Uh, I give Condi Rice, with whom with whom I was hired to disagree in some ways, credit that she wanted to have at least one person around her who would be willing in private. To look her in the eye and say, "Boss, I hate to tell you this, but I think that's wrong." And often people don't have that. 
Yes, yeah, no, it's a, it's the court jester, of course, isn't it? In uh, yes. Tudor, um, Tudor, he was uh, allowed to say uh, say whatever he liked. Uh, you mentioned Henry Kissinger earlier, who was uh, a guest actually on the Secrets of Statecraft earlier, um, and he, of course, worked for Richard Nixon, who is a Shakespearean character, isn't he? That 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 great um, uh, Shakespearean character who is uh, part hero, part anti-hero, suffused with great um, qualities, a fatal flaw. Yep. He's got everything, hasn't he, for Shakespeare? You could see, you can, you can, I mean, William Shakespeare's Richard Nixon would have been a wonderful play, wouldn't it? He, it, it would have been, and even has a, a kind of soliloquy. Um, so when Nixon leaves the White House, he gives a speech which is nominally to the assembled staff, but but it, in in many ways it's him doing what what you do in a soliloquy, which is kind of breaking the fourth wall, speaking to the audience, but also you're you're revealing who you are. And yet part of the speech was something about don't give way to hating, because when you hate, you eventually destroy yourself. And that was Nixon. Now I think what happened is Nixon kind of closed back up uh, within a few years after leaving power. But at that moment. Uh, one or two other moments. So there was an interview with David Frost uh, that I remember. The famous. One. He he let himself be exposed, and and uh, you know I, he also he, it's a very, in a very Shakespearean way, um, is you know figuring it all out too late. It's what I believe the Greeks called anagnorisis, where you suddenly go, aha, that's what it is. It's you know Richard the Second going, I've wasted time and now doth time waste me. You know, he, where you finally figure out, okay, so this, or that was the Wolsey quote at the very beginning said, oh, this was, I just deceived myself about the nature of my own greatness. Now it's too late for him to do anything about it. Uh, but at least he has that moment of, of awareness as, as of course happens with Lear as well. Yes, I mean it's a sort of darkness at noon moment, isn't it, from Kersler, yes. the, the the point where self realization comes, but but far too late. Um, you mentioned Richard the Second, of course, from where the Hollow Crown um, title comes. That seems to have a lot of uh, of messages, as of course does Henry the Fourth, um, parts one and two. How would how would and considering that Shakespeare was working in a very difficult political um, world. You said rightly that uh, Henry V is a criticism of kingship, but it wasn't easy for a playwright in Elizabethan England to criticise kingship, yeah. uh, or indeed early Stuart England. You know, you you these plays were being watched incredibly carefully, weren't they, for their uh, overall political subtexts? It was pretty. It was pretty brave um, of uh, of Shakespeare on occasion to make uh, um, references and allusions that uh, that might not have gone down well with the uh, political establishment of the day. Well, and of course, he very famously has a close call when uh, Richard II is performed at uh, the behest of the uh, Earl of Essex just before his attempted uh, coup against Elizabeth. Um, well, this is why Shakespeare is a genius, that he's nonetheless skirting uh, he's skirting that you know it's i i would I wouldn't call elizabethan um england a totalitarian state but i think there are maybe analogies with the way in which you can get some extraordinarily creative writers uh you did get some extraordinarily creative writers in eastern europe and and even in 
the Soviet Union at a time when you you know you knew the censor was looking closely at you. Um, so you would write in a fairly clever and indir indirect way. Now, you can take this a little bit far. There's, a, of course, the German Jewish philosopher Leo Strauss uh, read a famous essay called Persecution and the Art of Writing, which he you know, probably blows this up beyond what is uh, reasonable. But it says, you know, if that a lot of writers understood that there were, their words could get them in trouble. And so they are clever about how they yeah. deliver their um, deliver their messages. Uh, but I, you know, having said all that, I think there was more room than we might think. What's interesting to me is that there's some issues he doesn't touch at all, like religion. You know, it really doesn't appear at all. Yeah, I think that was probably the to mix historical metaphors, the proverbial third rail that you really didn't want. To. Well, of course, no, absolutely, it was a it was a, a powder keg, a, a literal powder keg, of course, yes, in the case right. of gunpowder yeah, right. plot, which uh, took took place during his. Uh, during his lifetime. Um, and also, of course, it's one of the reasons why uh, some people, I am not one of them, uh, believe that he was a secret Catholic. Yeah. Um, that's uh, that's um, one of the things put forward. Um, I, there is There are plenty of segues um, from the horrors of, uh, of Shakespeare and some of the most terrible things that happen, especially to children and babies in, uh, in Shakespeare and the um, events in... Um, yeah. In Gaza at the moment, in southern Israel and Gaza, I'm not going to try and jump uh, from one to the other, except to say that you have written about uh, terrorism a great deal. You're, um, you've been tremendously prescient with regard to uh, what you've written, especially on Israel's security within your book, um, Knives, Tanks and, and Missiles, back in 1998. That's 20 yeah. plus years ago. That's a that's a you know, quarter of a yeah. century ago. And yet the things that you were writing then have... Um, have come to pass. What is your uh, sense of the way that uh, that it's going at the moment mm. in um, the the IDF um, campaign in Gaza? So I mean, I, I'll actually be going over there shortly with a small group of uh, national security and military experts, and in a way, I'd, I'd have more to say afterwards. Um, you know, and it and from a distance. And with the fog of war, it's always very hard to tell. So my, but if, a few quick bottom lines. One, I think Hamas had catastrophic success. I don't think they expected to do as well as they did, um, and elicit a response which is probably a lot more than they expected. I think from a military technical point of view, the Israelis look to me to have been doing very well. That you know to go into this very dense urban environment, which you know the other side's been preparing for a long time. Um, and to be able to take uh, terrain and you know get into the tunnel systems and all that, it's it's very impressive. Um, the, what the day after is like, I do not know. I do know a couple of things though. One is the the Israeli objective is really to eliminate Hamas as a military threat and and as the entity that governs the Gaza Strip. Um, and they will do that, I think, by trying to track down every last one and kill them. Um, I think more, even more significant in the long term is what is this doing to Israel? The big issue there, and I've, I've said this in some of my columns in The Atlantic, is in, in a certain way, the existential question is back on the table for Israel in a way that it hasn't been since 1973. 
And even if it's not, even if, you know, those of us sitting in the United States or Great Britain might say, well, it's, you know, it's really not an existential threat. The, the more important point is the existential feeling is there. And that's what really what, what counts. The other thing is that with all the horrors and they really are hideous, you know, I, I have not had the heart to see that uh, 47 minute video that they're showing. Neither have I. But I have talked to people who have, and they just say, you know, people run from the room. Everybody is sobbing. It's, it's hideous. Um, what is striking to me is, you know, this is a very healthy civil society. You know, the idea that this happens and 200,000 people go back to the country, that military reserve units are showing up at a, like 110, 115% strength because even people who are discharged are showing up to see what they can do. Um, and some of the previous splits, so for example, between the ultra-Orthodox and the more mainstream religious and, and secular, even that's diminished. You've had thousands of the ultra-Orthodox volunteering for military service, completely unheard of, doing a lot of relief work. So it'll be a different Israel. Now, that it could go in a number of different directions. It could go in some pretty ugly ways. It could also go in some pretty positive ways. But for all those reasons, I think the, the main thing that, that uh, people have to understand is it's going to be a very, very different Israel that you're dealing with now than in the past. And so therefore, I think a lot of the analogies that people uh, have drawn with 1982 or whatever just don't apply. One last thing I'll say is the Israelis who have screwed up many times in the past, I have a long tradition, which I sometimes, which I do wish the United States would emulate, of when things go really badly, you appoint a very senior state commission that is absolutely ruthless in getting at the truth and letting the chips fall where they may. And if that means that a prime minister or a defense minister get fired, that's just fine. And they did that after 73. Uh, they did that after 2006. They've done that on other occasions. Unquestionably, that's going to happen here. And I am sure that actually mo after the war, most of the or the main phase, you'll see a lot of the senior leadership, military and intelligence leadership resign. And the whether the political leadership wants to resign or not, they're gone. I mean, BB is really finished, I think. Um well, uh, Churchill didn't survive the Second World no. War either. It's no. um, you know, it's no. uh, it, it tends to happen like that, doesn't it? And uh, Lloyd George didn't last for that much longer after the First World War. Tell me, uh, what uh, what book are you reading? What history book or biography are you reading at the moment? So, um, I'm I'm always reading a bunch of things simultaneously. So I'm reading a uh, I'm going through this massive three volume biography of Theodore Roosevelt because my next book is about uh, Theodore Roosevelt and the world. Um, it's very well written. It's you know the problem with with Roosevelt is he is such a loud, flamboyant, extraordinary character that it's harder um, to get at the very, very serious core of the man. And that's really what I want to do in my book. So my my book will probably have fewer of the really funny stories and so on, and more of the you know the seriousness at the heart of the man. And then on a um, you know, on the lighter side, uh, my wife and I just went on a eight-day walking holiday in the Cotswolds, which was great fun. We dodged the rains until we got to Bath. Uh, so I began, you know, we went to my favorite bookstore in London, Hatchards, before we uh, began hiking. 
and I picked up, uh, I'd never really read J.B. Priestley. And so I uh, picked up An English Journey, uh, which is, you know, his rambles around some of the, the harder pressed parts of, of England specifically, although he does go to the Cotswolds as well uh, in the late thirties. And I just thought it was a, it was a fascinating, charming uh, book and it's, made me inclined to read a little bit more of him. I don't know whether he's one of your favorites or not. Um he he's not really no. I I uh I I did read the book of his spectator articles and um and they I I say one in three really uh, really are great and hit home but the but the other two didn't. And so I'm afraid I'm not a a, pre, a massive priestly fan. Plus he was quite anti-churchill. Um, yeah, well, all right. in, now, that, in that case, in that case, he's dead to me. <laughs> what? Tell us about your what if your uh, your counterfactual. What's the uh, what's the one that you enjoy? Suppose Abraham Lincoln had not sent Ward Lemon uh, off to Richmond uh, the day before he went to Ford's Theater. So Ward Lemon was a close friend of Churchill's. He was a huge guy. I think he was about six foot three. Lincoln's. He was a, a federal marshal, and he was really Lincoln's bodyguard. Um, escorted him into Washington, very dangerous times when he was inaugurated. Was really maintaining security on the White House grounds, and would all would would have probably accompanied uh, Lincoln to the to Ford's Theater. And if that had happened, you know, I I tend to think that. Uh, he would have reacted because he, he could be a fairly violent man. Um, he he would have reacted, and you know maybe Lincoln would have been wounded, or more likely, I think John Wilkes Booth would have, you know, met a sorry end er, early, the, earlier yeah. than he did. <laughs> and the reason why I I think about that is, okay, so what would Reconstruction have been like? And I you know the the thing that Lincoln was realizing at the end of his life was that in some ways the South was really going to try to resist uh, emancipation of the slaves, not formal emancipation, that that was a done deal, but essentially giving people, uh, African-Americans, the rights of citizenship. And, you know, one of the things I've written about Lincoln in a different book uh, called Supreme Command, and one of the things that that strikes me about Lincoln is for all his profound humanity, he could be absolutely ruthless. And, you know, the the big, I mean, Reconstruction fails in many ways. And I think the recent historians have really brought this out. The amount of racial violence that you saw in the South, particularly after the Grant presidency, is striking. But a lot of the damage had already been done under Andrew Johnson, who succeeded Lincoln. And you have to wonder... Um, you know, how Lincoln would have dealt with that, because I think he was very committed to ensuring that, uh, you know, the Southern states would be readmitted to the Union, but that the new dispensation would, was going to be that black and white Americans were all citizens and had to be treated as such. So that I think is a, it's a fascinating what it's if, what if. That is. That's a fantastic one. Absolutely. That's uh, that's one for uh, for us all to ponder. Um, I've got one last question for you, which I was just thinking of a little earlier. What would Shakespeare have made of Donald Trump? Is there a Trumpian figure in the in the Shakespearean canon? Oh, there absolutely is. is there he? absolutely is. Who is he? Who is he? And 
And let me just say here and now, everybody screws this one up, okay? So they did a, a performance of Shakespeare in the Park in 2015 or 2016. It was Julius Caesar, and, and the guy was Trump, basically, long red tie. And, uh, you know, and, and I think other people have written books saying, he's Macbeth, he's Richard III. No, no, he's Cloten in Cymbeline. So for those of you who are not familiar with Cymbeline, uh, Cymbeline, it's, it's a, it's, it's a very weird play. Uh, but one of the, the key figures is Cloten, who is the son of the King's second wife. And he lusts for the, uh, the King's daughter, Inigan, by the first wife, uh, who is married and is actually virtuous. And I think one of the most interesting heroines in Shakespeare and, He's a dummy. He's violent. He's a misogynist. He wants to rape her. Uh, he wants to murder her husband. And he wants to humiliate her. It's fascinating. He comes to a very sticky end, which is very satisfying. Um, but the thing that, that that struck me about it so powerfully was that his the courtiers around him, because he thinks he's going to become king. The courtiers around him, they make fun of him. They laugh at his expense and they do absolutely nothing to stop him. And on that bombshell, uh, <laughs> Elliot Cohen, thank you very much indeed for appearing on uh, Secrets of Statecraft. Andrew, thank you for having me. My thanks to Elliot Cohen for appearing on Secrets of Statecraft. My next guest is another Elliot, Elliot Abrams, who was Assistant Secretary of State under Ronald Reagan, Deputy National Security Advisor under George W. Bush, and the US Special Representative for Iran under Donald Trump. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we generate and promote ideas advancing freedom. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.